G'day, Cobbers and Sheilas, and welcome to a brand new episode of Pottywood. Um, I'm reverting back to my normal accent now. Um, I'm one of your co-hosts, Steve Hester, and with me, as always, is... Uh, I'm the other co-host. I'm Andrew Roger Carson, and to be honest, for any new listeners, they're going to instantly think you're Australian and then switch. I know. Boom! Mind blown. (laughs) Bait and switch there. Bait and switch. But yes, uh, I guess welcome back to Pottywood. We've missed you. Yeah, Thank you for coming back. Uh, and if this is your first time here, then welcome to this wonderful world of movie-based discussion where myself and another 40-plus-year-old man who really should know better try and interview some of the leading lights in the world of cinema and try and get in deep delve into their processes and how they made their movies and all the rest of it. Um, before we start, though, I'd just like to just give a quick uh, shout out to a friend of mine, James Arnold, who's been uh, who's been pushing us on Twitter. So thanks a lot, James. Uh, we really need to go for a pint sometime. It's been ages. Hang on a minute. I'm just reverting back when you were saying that's what the format of our show is. Is that what we've been doing for six episodes? Allegedly. I don't wow. know what you've been doing. <laughs> I don't know. I thought this was the cue for the ice creams. Oh, right. <laughs> no, that's over there. Or the toilets, even. And speaking of toilets, Steve. Um, oh! L- <clears throat> totally off the cuff. Off the cuff. Um, last week, in the return of What's in the Box, uh-huh. uh, Steve pulled out Kenny. Not literally, I mean, he pulled out a movie <laughs> called Kenny, uh, which is a 2006 mock- Australian mockumentary about a. Uh, is he a Porter John supplier or is is he a yeah? Uh, he's uh, he's someone that works with the Dannys, yes, as they say down in Oz. Uh, it's about a guy called Kenny, um, who, as you say, he works in sanitation, particularly with portable toilets, portaloos, porter cabins, all that kind of thing. If you've been to any kind of festival or any kind of big outdoor event, then you know you you will have you might seen as well that. shit in the bush. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> You know they're they're always horrible and they're always just disgusting. But it it, it follows him and it's um he's he's quite a well-meaning guy and it's a slice of life. Now, as we mentioned when we were doing the Barbara Coppola episode, I'm a big fan of mockumentaries. I think they're great. I think if they're done well, they can be really really funny. You know, stuff like um, Spinal Tap's probably the one that everyone always kind of goes to but there's loads of other really good ones out there what we do in the shadows um i knew you were going to come out with that one again. it's it's a great it's a great film it's a really funny film um mike bassett england manager that's one of my favorites as well a mighty wind also by christopher guest um so when you pulled this out and i was looking at the synopsis it's an australian guy okay australia australians usually really funny who works with port loose brilliant and it's a mockumentary brilliant this is going to be great. Um, mm. Oh, scandal is coming. Come on, Steve. Yeah. Now, look, it's it's one of those movies where nothing really happens. And I know that that kind of happens in a lot of mockumentaries, but there is usually some kind of end goal. There is there is the big competition that people are coming together to, to, to aim for. There's... Um, there's the event which is happening further down the line and they're following the characters on the lead up to that event. There's always kind of something that's happening. And at several points in the movie, you kind of felt, okay, here we go. We've introed the characters and now the actual kick is going to happen. 
like at one point he goes uh, from Australia to America and I was thinking, oh, here we go. Fish out of water. He's going to another country. First time flying. Oh, brilliant. I get this. Oh, it happened in Crocodile Dundee. Let's see where we... Oh, no, he's just he's just kind of stared at some toilets in a convention and then gone back to Australia. Oh, but he went back to Australia because his dad's died. Or maybe it's about the reconnecting the family because his dad's a bit of an arsehole. No. No, it, it just leads to a scene where they're having a camping trip and 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 then he gets a phone call from the hospital saying his dad's fine after his operation. Oh, well, maybe it's about the big event that happens at the end of the film. No, because there's no kind of mention of that right up until the fact that the, uh, what was it, the Brisbane Cup, the Adelaide Cup, whichever it was, I think it was the Adelaide Cup, um, this big horse racing meet. And that could have been set up earlier. You know, ah, we got the Adelaide Cup coming up at the end of the year. It's the biggest uh, event of the season for us and we need to get prepared and you follow everything as everything goes wrong on the lead up to this big event and the big event going wrong. But no, there's there's lots of these little nuggets which feel like they're going to pay off and lead into a much bigger story, but they don't. And a lot of it is presented very much as a documentary as opposed to a mockumentary. I mean, it does have some great lines in there. Like he's cleaning out a septic tank and sticks his head up and says, there's a smell in here that will outlast a religion. <laughs> Which I I was laughing at. Um, but even then, there weren't enough of those kind of actual jokes, actual zingers, actual lines to try and make it fun enough or funny enough, really. It is basically just like a day in the life of a porter john program, it, really. It, it is, but if it's selling itself as a comedy, there's very little actually in there which kind of pushes the main central premise into a land of, of funniness. I think the, the most outrageous bit is where they're trying to drive across a, a track while they've got big rigs that are racing around them because they need to get down to the other end of the stadium to stop one of the portaloos from being set on fire. That's kind of like the big set piece, but that takes place within about the first half hour. Right. And, and it's like, okay, no, I see. That's that's a nice little moment, but it, it doesn't kind of spill onto anywhere after that. So, so you're saying for a movie about toilets, there's not a lot of movements. Yes. I don't think it's flushed with jokes. <laughs> but Well, we've just added two. A number two, so to speak. Uh, well, this is practically uh, a family-made movie. Mm. Because, uh, obviously, Shane Jacobson, who I did actually contact to come on to this show. Uh, He's not going to come on now. <laughs> well, he, to be honest, he wouldn't anyway. He sent word back through his agent. Uh, yeah, uh, Shane's not really interested. I'm like, oh, okay, fair enough. He's probably doing the series to this, which there is actually a series that follows on from this kind of reverse office style. Oh, so he followed through, did he? <laughs> he did. He followed through immensely. <laughs> Uh, it was directed by his brother, Clayton Jacobson, who also appears. In, and the amazing thing is, mm-hmm. I've seen, I was looking through Clayton Jacobson's CV, and he directed another movie after this, funnily enough, that also starred Shane Jacobson. So I think they do a lot of movies together. But uh, Clayton Jacobson, he had directed like music videos for In Excess, which I think probably every Australian director has ended up with an In Excess uh, music video so. on their CV. Uh, but Clayton Jacobson's also an actor as well. Uh, he's been seen in probably two of the best Australian movies that have come out in recent years. Uh, one being Upgrade. Oh, that was brilliant. Which was a brilliant movie. 
and uh, Animal Kingdom, which was also turned into a series after the success of the movie. But the movie of Animal Kingdom is really, really good. Who was he in Upgrade? Uh, oh, God. I don't know the character name. I just know he was in it. Huh. You're asking me to do too much research there, Steve. Come on. Okay. Um, I mean, the thing is, I thought Shane Jacobson came along as very likable. I think that know. was his problem, though. He was too likable. Yeah, you know the character is wonderful, and he's really, really warm, and he's really, really sweet. And you know, there's many parts of the movie that you do just want to reach in through the screen, wrap your arms around him, and give him a hug, and say that everything's going to be all right. But yeah, it I needed mean... more kind of m- moments where he's not quite a teddy bear, and it, there is one at the end where he turns on his septic tank and pours it into a guy's car. But even that just felt like they. They were looking through the film as it was, and then went, oh, we've not kind of had him bare his teeth, so to speak, so we need to put this scene in at the end. Yeah, me, me personally, I think I thought there was some really funny parts of the script. I think it was it was really well acted. I, I actually thought mm. for a mockumentary it was well acted, and I made the mistake of listening to it with earbuds in, and there's certain sounds in this movie you should never hear with <laughs> earbuds in, for sure. Uh, <laughs> Put me right off my chili, but, um, <laughs> so you know it's 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 one of those things where you had a lot of people actually starring in the movie who were members of the family, so it was kind of a hmm. I guess kind of an independent family made movie. And the amazing thing is, I mean, <laughs> this could have been the greatest movie made for product placement in the world because all the products and all the companies are actually real products and companies that are that are on show, and it's always wondering. Did they pour in some movie money for these companies? I wonder if that's how it got made. Because I'm always interested in the Australian film system because they do there are some cracking stuff and they're very unapologetic about the movies that they put out. I think they probably uh, did. Because if you think about it, if if you if you've got a film, I don't know what the budget for this was, but I can't see it being gargantuan. You know, it is a very small. Aussie movie, like you say. So, I mean, if you've got a big company that's maybe putting in, I don't know, 10 grand, then, you know, you stick a few of them in your film. You've got, like, I don't know, 50 grand that you can spend. Exactly. Which could go a long way. Yeah. You know, a lot more than an in excess music video nowadays. Yes. But um, if you're interested in seeing Kenny, it is on Plex. You can find it streaming on there with adverts. Yeah. I will say this though: if you are going to watch it, stick the subtitles on for the beginning part because his uh, he, he, the character does have a lisp, which I'm guessing is not uh, is not um, Jacobson's own. But um, the, the opening with the music and the the sound of the truck while he's there talking, it kind of a bit hard to work out what he's saying. So the subtitles I have those. Yeah, I will give that. I mean, for me, it's an enjoyable watch to watch once. Uh, mm-hmm. But I'm guessing that it doesn't rank on your favourite mockumentaries. No, I mean, I didn't hate it. I just thought that it needed a bit more focus, really. A bit more focus. You know, lean into the uh, the concept a bit more. And, uh, yeah, it could be huge. It could have been huge. Do another one. Cool. <laughs> yeah, do, do, do another one. I'm sure they will. Um, well, uh, now that we've delved into the world of Kenny, let's plunge into our anniversaries. Watch them again, all of the time Oh, we get them on Prime for free But we only know how old they are When we learn their anniversary Well, that's 
it, is it? That's it. <laughs> All right. Okay. That's it. Okay. Well, uh, from talking about uh, one outback, let's talk about another outback. Can you believe, Steve, mm-hmm. that 30 years ago, a movie called Medicine Man was released? Uh, rings a bell. Is that. I, I want. Jeff Goldblum? <laughs> No. No. Jesus Christ. It amazes me how absolutely shocking your memory is for movies. Medicine Man was the movie where Sean Connery was playing a doctor out in the Amazon who cures cancer and then loses the cure before the end of the movie. Um, This was the movie that was directed by John McTiernan, uh, the infamous director of Die Hard, Predator, uh, Last Action Hero, which is a classic, I think. I don't care what the critics say. And uh, unfortunately, it was also the director of that Rollerball remake. Oh, God, that was a horrible, horrible experience. Um, And yes, it starred Sean Connery and Lorraine Bracco. Or Bracco. I think Lorraine Bracco. I'm I'm going with that. But this was the movie where Sean Connery pocketed $10 million for this role. And all he had to do was really don a Jerry Goldsmith-style ponytail. (laughs) <laughs> which he rocks throughout this movie. Yes, $10 million. Yeah. And he finally let that ponytail down for the opening of The Rock. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then shaved it for a buzz cut. Um, Medicine Man is not a great movie. It's not. It's not a great movie at all, but it had a really big kind of release campaign. But I do know, and I found this out from when I actually saw it on Stars in LA, that our version was trimmed considerably. Well, that to get a PG me. rating. They do it all the yes. time. I know, but for Medicine Man, I always thought this movie was a PG, but it wasn't. Uh, this would have classed as a 12, but obviously we didn't have the official 12 rating in the UK until uh, 1994 when it was tacked on to Ace Ventura Pet Detective, which was the first movie to get the official 12 rating for VHS release. Ah, now that is a fun little fact. I know, that's my nerdism coming out. Uh, Unfortunately, this movie, I mean, it's bad in most areas and it's the most unfortunate thing. It is probably not a career highlight for Lorraine Bracco. Uh, It was not her shining role, let's put it that way. And I'm sure it's a movie where Sean Connery maybe got to play golf in somewhere exotic. I'm sure that's probably the reason why he did it. Probably. It's uh, it's not a well-remembered movie of John McTiernan's career. Well, can you believe, Steve, mm-hmm. that you probably can, but 20 years ago this week... Monsters, Inc. was released. Oh, do I feel old? Yes, you should do. Uh, Directed by three up-and-coming directors at the time. We had Pete Docter, who went on to direct Up. Uh We had David Silverman, who went on to direct the Simpsons movie. And Lee Unkrich, who also went on to do Toy Story 3 and 4, I believe. And uh, this was the movie you had to be incredibly patient to work on, because... Well, it took 11 to 12 hours to render a single frame. Because of Sully's hair. Yes, the insane amount of detail yeah. that went into it at the time. It could probably be done in a quarter of that time nowadays. Yeah, well, there's a, I think it's Moore's Law, which says that every four years, the, the cost of computer equipment drops by half while the, the speed doubles, something like that. So 20 years ago, 
that on computers now, you'd be yeah, I'd say even a fraction of that. Yeah, and uh, you know this is uh, the movie where Billy Crystal finally joined Disney. Because uh, if you remember, he was uh, originally offered the role of Buzz Lightyear, and he turned it down. You're oh. a fool, Billy. You fool. You'd be working every day for the rest of your life and earning lots of money from those toy sales alone. I don't think Tim Allen has worked hard a day in his life ever since. No, he's basically did Toy Store, the Santa Claus, and then that's been it. Yes. Oh, what was it? Wild it Hogs. That was the other one. I think that was. Yes. He, he just doesn't care anymore. It's like I could live off Buzz Lightyear forever. Uh, I actually watched Monsters, Inc. again this week and I introduced my son to it. And I noticed something in it that I thought was really cool, actually. And and Disney actually do this a lot. And if you see a lot of the stuff on Disney+, Plus, like I do, you you notice these little nods that animators have. That uh, The restaurant in Monsters, Inc. is called Harry Harryhausen's. Yeah! yeah. <laughs> I thought that was absolutely cool. I'd never noticed that before. Yeah, because everyone knows about the A113 reference that they stick into everything and the Pizza Planet truck that they stick into yes. everything. But yeah, the little nods. Yeah, the hidden Mickeys is pretty much in every Disney film. But yeah, that, that Harryhausen's. I remember, God, I can't remember where I first heard that. But yeah, I heard that ages ago. And it it was just like a perfect nod to a world of monsters. Exactly. You know, it, it's great. And this... Uh, this was actually the highest-grossing animated movie of its time. It's been surpassed since. Mm-hmm. But then I look at it and think, hang on a minute. This movie featured the first-ever trailer for Star Wars Attack of the Clones. And then on further discovery, many fans actually paid to see that trailer and then left. Oh. <laughs> so you have to wonder, hmm, does that factor into it? Uh, right. It could do, but I still don't really understand why they wouldn't just still stick around and see the film. It's like, well, yeah, I've seen the trailer. Brilliant. Well, I paid for the ticket. Might as well see the film. You know, why Why watch just like a two-minute trailer and then just leave? That, that back in the day is the Star Wars fans saying, huh, Disney. And nowadays <laughs> they're like, oh, um, yay, Disney. <laughs> please, Mr. Mouse, may we have some more Mandalorian, please? Yes, they've already been moaning because of bloody Book of Boba Fett, and now suddenly they're like, oh, it's awesome. And then the week after, it's like, oh, it's you got too many characters. I thought this was about Boba Fett. Not ruin it for you, because I know you've not seen it yet. But... I'm going to binge it when it's all out. Yeah, you, you should. You'll probably appreciate it more that way, just hearing these people moan about Star Wars every week. But I'm, I'm getting off topic here. Um, noticeable things about Monsters, Inc., it was James Coburn's last movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he died not uh, long after, didn't he? The legendary James Coburn of Hudson Hawk fame. And <laughs> Maverick. And the Candy Bars. A Maverick, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, a little bit of trivia here. Do you know that Mike and Sully, being John Goodman and Billy Crystal, actually appeared in an animated movie only the year before? Where they, they were toys, weren't they? No. no, they appeared in the infamously bad The Adventures of Rocky and Bullwinkle only a year before. And speaking of films of 2001, obviously we have been speaking about the big movies of the year, including uh, Fellowship of the Ring mm-hmm. and Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. And Monsters, Inc. is the third highest grossing film of 2001 behind those two movies. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thanks to Star Wars. <laughs> so... <laughs> 
Uh, I mean, if you've not seen this film or if you haven't seen it in a long time, uh, the character animation is still amazing to this day after 20 years. Uh, my favourite being Randall, voiced by Steve Buscemi. I think that is just one absolutely amazing character. Yeah. And if you want to see a movie where Pixar was just elevating its game, this was the movie. And you get your Randy Newman song chucked in there for good measure as well. Yeah, I now can't think of Randy Newman without his little inclusion in Family Guy. Yeah, so yeah. Family Guy, the show that just ruins love of everything. Yeah. And speaking of which, uh, we're also going to go back another 30 years. So this is the first time that two movies from 30 years ago, I thought we had Medicine Man, so now I thought we kind of have to include this one because it's a bit interesting. Can you believe, Steve, mm-hmm. 30 years ago this week, mm-hmm. My Girl was released. Ooh. <laughs> yes, I think that is what every single person remembers about when they hear My Girl, you. Uh, the movie that was directed by a man known as Howard Zeef, who directed the equally bad uh, Barbara Streisland boxing movie, The Main Event. Uh, the pretty actually funny and, dare I say, cult film starring uh, Michael Keaton and Christopher Lloyd called The Dream Team. Which I, I like that movie. Liked. I like, yeah, film, I like yeah. that movie. And uh, the absolutely classic Private Benjamin starring Goldie Hawn. Uh, uh, I have not seen is, that movie. Ah, it's in the box. It's in uh. the box. Uh, yeah, my girl. Um, <laughs> it was just everywhere at the time. And I think the reason that I don't like it is because being, what, about 10 years old or so, um, I'm a, roughly about the same age as Macaulay Culkin. So it was just everywhere. And I, I just hated the fact that I was everywhere I looked on like TVs and newspapers it was just this movie with these kids and that song was playing on all the radio stations and it was just like no get out of my life I don't want anything to do with you I had the unfortunate time of actually seeing a pirate copy from Cyprus of my girl that my friend had Hmm. (laughs) and they were watching it and I was like what am I watching here and why does it look so terrible and uh I have seen it properly since. But amazingly, um, Elijah Wood actually was going for the role that Macaulay Culkin uh, eventually got. But obviously Culkin was the most bankable child star mm. at the time and was being sought after everything thanks to Home Alone and Home Alone 2 and uh, and My Girl, I guess. Um, so uh, It wasn't for Bad Son or what was it? What was that one that he did? The good, good son. son. Yeah. Funnily enough, the movie where Elijah Burke tosses Macaulay Culkin off a cliff edge. Hmm. <laughs> hmm. Yes. Yeah. Kind of interesting. Uh, but this was uh, the amazing thing about My Girl, and I can't understand how it became such a big thing because uh, the original script was actually entered in the Nickel Fellowship screenwriting contest, and it didn't get past the first round. What is but, what is the screenwriting contest? I've never heard of it. It's a screenwriter. It, you know, you hear about the blacklist, the Hollywood. Um, yeah, not blacklist. It's not blacklist. What's no, it, it, I think it is called like the blacklist, but it's like not the way. What that a you weird think. thing to call putting your script on. I know. It's like the <laughs> most most successful unmade movies in Hollywood. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, well, this is actually a thing that um, it, it is what it is. It's a screenwriting contest. Oh, okay. And uh, it didn't actually get past the the rounds, but somehow it ended up getting made. Um, by Howard. Thank you very much. Um, but the, the interesting thing about this is the links about this movie that 
don't get mentioned, then maybe you think, oh my God, I didn't even think about that. The fact being that both Dan Aykroyd and Jamie Lee Curtis are in this movie from Trading Places. Yes. And no one makes that link. Um, and Dan Aykroyd uh, originally might not have been in it. Uh, he was experiencing trouble from his, well, extremely troubled directorial debut, Nothing But Trouble. Mm-hmm. Which is... Uh, ghastly is the word? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's one of those movies that you just... Yeah. Yeah. It's one of those releases that even Macrovision wouldn't touch. No. It's like, no, just have the movie. Whatever. Anywhere, anywhere you want it, we've got to ship them somehow. Even Vinegar Syndrome are like, ooh, no, maybe not. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, it's, I suppose it's kind of a sweet film, really, and I think that's where its main problem is. But, you know, it's Macaulay Culkin getting killed by bees. That's what everyone remembers about it. And the only reason to remember that about it, especially in the UK, is because the BBFC actually cut the scene where they made the blood pact between Anna Chomsky and Macaulay Culkin and like cut their fingers and rub them together. Because it's like, oh, we can't have kids doing that. What about HIV? So that scene never made it into the UK version. Okay, no, I can kind of I can, I can see the sense behind that one, you know. It, it's not like when they were butchering Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and said, we're not having nunchucks because I don't like ninjas. Oh, come on. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2 cut out sausages, for God's sake. I know. It's ridiculous. <laughs> sausage nunchucks. Because every time I pick up a string of sausages, the first thing I'm thinking is I'm going to whack someone with them. You know, but, you know, that's that's the BBFC. Uh, infamous, infamous. We could do an entire show on the BBFC's biggest, like, blunders. I think that might be a good idea at some point in the future as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It'd be interesting. You know, we, we've already covered the uh, the ITV and BBC butchering of dialogue in movies. And if these directors ever saw them, uh, they'd never approve them. Like, no. can you just take my name, Alan Smithy, it for TV, whatever? Uh, but yes, um, my girl is thirty years old, and it can stay back there along with its sequel, in my view. Yes. So, what have we got next? Well, that is our anniversaries over and done with. We Ooh. do have the second part of our George Gallo interview coming right up. But first, here's a special little word from our sponsor. You know, there are many different reasons why you would need a will, trusts, and protection of your estate following your death. At the end of the day, uh, you want to pass it along to who you want without those unwanted clawing at your hard-earned. In situations where you hate members of your family and you don't want them to have your stuff, or if you're with a partner long-term and are unmarried, if that partner has children from a previous relationship, or if you just want to give specific gifts to people, you need a specific kind of lawyer. That being Morton Young Solicitors. If you want to safeguard your assets from divorce, bankruptcy, creditors, those bad addictive habits, you need a lawyer who really works with you and dedicates their career to helping individuals and getting the right results each time. You need a lawyer to be approachable, explain the layout and answer every phone call that you make. That is my solicitors. Contact Andrew Young at Morton Young Solicitors for a free first consultation. Morton Young, your personal professional for wills, trusts, powers of attorney, probate and administration of estates, as well as personal injury and litigation. 
my solicitors, call Andrew Young at 0161 464 9731 or email andrew.young at mortonyoung.co.uk today and quote Poddywood as your reference. Here's on to part two of our George Gallo interview. Your first script actually sold was the movie Wise Guys, which was, if you don't know, a gangster comedy that uh, starred Joe Piscopo and Danny DeVito and was directed by Brian De Palma. So how was this first script actually picked up by the Giants at MGM? Um, I got a call uh, when I was getting ready to leave, uh, when I was getting ready to leave New York or mentally, you know, I was like, like I think I need to, you know, go to Los Angeles you know, around the same time, I got a call from uh, uh, Aaron Russo. Uh, I got a call from my agent that Aaron Russo was interested in optioning Wise Guys, but he wanted to meet me in Los Angeles. So I went out to L.A. I met with them. They ended up optioning the screenplay. And, and then I uh, ended up staying here in L.A. because I met this incredible, wonderful, beautiful, funny, effervescent waitress by the name of Julie. And uh, I did not suddenly want to go back to New York. I figured, hell, I'll stay in L.A. Uh, and, and, you know, we've now been together for 38 years. Uh, so obviously I was supposed to stay here. And and, uh, and then I ended up getting an apartment. Uh, it, it, I ended up, <laughs> ended up getting an apartment at, at um, oh, the Oakwood Garden Apartments, which was sort of the... Boy, if there's a TV series, it was that place in the 80s. <laughs> Everybody in there was a wannabe writer or wannabe actor. It was filled with porn stars. I mean, it was just a zoo. There should definitely be a, a sitcom looking back on the 80s of that place. <laughs> but anyway, I was stuck with all of that. And, uh, you know, I had a one-bedroom apartment, uh, you know, with my IBM Selectric typewriter. And I did all the rewrites for Wise Guys there. And then I got lucky. The movie got made. Uh, and that was sort of the beginning then. Now I was on the other side of it. I wasn't a person who'd sold a bunch of stuff, but I was, a per- I was an actually produced screenwriter. And, that, and I was in my late 20s when that happened. Was uh, the movie production held up in the infamous MGM regime change around the time? You know, I don't really remember that, to be honest with you. I, I don't remember too clearly uh, what the deal was. I know that Aaron Russo was, was he was doing a lot of movies and he he had just, uh, Trading Places was out and was a big hit. Mm. I think he, I think that was Paramount though. And yeah. then he had a deal at MGM UA and he did a movie called uh, Teachers. Uh, oh, the Nick Nolte a, movie. Yeah, Arthur yeah. Hiller directed, and I got to be—I got to be pretty good friends with Arthur. Arthur and I used to talk a lot about directing. I—I I really admired Arthur Hiller. He's another guy I think highly underrated director. In that, uh, when you think of the In-Laws, uh, the Peter Falk, Alan Arkin movie, uh, or he did—he uh, also directed. Oh, let me directed a lot of movies. Obviously, directed like 30, 40 movies, uh, but he also directed uh, in terms of comedies, The Out of Towners. Which, if you look at some of the camera work in Out of Towners, it is so good. That movie yeah. is so fresh and bouncy. But, like I say, I, I certainly asked Arthur a lot of 
questions about directing. I have to tell you, can I digress for one minute because I may forget. The best advice about directing I ever got came from Sidney Pollack. Genius. Yeah, I got to know Sidney pretty well, and I, which is why I, I would not flourish at all well in the studio system because in, in the studios, and I've made movies for studios, the problem with making movies for studios is that they, they, they write the screenplay to death. They, they, they make it. In, they, they take everything that was interesting out of it. Mm. And the problem is, is because they don't understand movie making. They don't understand visuals. They don't understand the art of storytelling. The problem is that all the subtext becomes text, and once that happens, it's just not interesting anymore. The screenplay becomes ironclad and you have to execute the script exactly the way it's written, whatever the hell that means. But Sidney said, and, I'm, and I come from a screenwriting background, but Sidney said to me, let the movie tell you what the movie wants to be. And I was like, huh. And that also, because I'm also a painter, goes back to what Claude Monet said, a smart painter follows his brush. They're very similar ideas in that you have to allow the thing to be what it wants to be, mm. you know, as you're painting. If the brush goes a certain way, kind of was supposed to, if the brush goes, quote, off or away from where you wanted it to go, but it looks great, then that's what you got to chase. And a lot of times when you're making a movie, you know, an actor brings so much to it, you, you go, this character is very, very funny. This is really working. I need to include this. I need to chase this. Not like, oh, I can't do that because it's going to destroy this. This isn't real yet. You know, these things are just yeah. thoughts in your head. You have to allow it to blossom. You know, you have to allow it to become what it wants to be. The reason a lot of times movies don't work is because I think people, they too steadfastly hold on to uh, what they think the movie's supposed to be. It's supposed to allowing it to be if it, if it wants to be something slightly different let it go there anyway if that makes no, any no, sense that, no, that's it, an amazing advice it does and it uh, segues quite nicely into our next question uh, oh it does does it, it okay it does yes <laughs> uh you follow up a buddy movie with now one of the most loved odd couple buddy movies in midnight run which we've covered before because of our Regular show favourite, John Ashton. Uh, this movie is one of the greatest scripts for character development of any movie of the 80s, and everyone looks to be having just the time of their lives out there. But were there any major changes to the script uh, in the production apart from Marvin not dying? Not really. You know, when I wrote Midnight Run, it was an amazing time in my life. I was young... I'd just been paid some money, substantial money now, you know, because uh, the movie had gotten made. Wise Guys had gotten made. I was kind of like on the A-list in Hollywood. Certainly the B-plus list possibly about to become A-list. Uh, you know, Julie and I were madly in love with each other. I mean, life was really good. And people wanted to know what I wanted to do next, you know, as a writer. And I... What I, it's funny with Midnight Run, the, the, the good thing about, look, and it was the time in the 80s when everyone was hungry for the original screenplay, mm. you know, so yeah. it was a great time to be a writer in Hollywood. And I had, you know, I had a, a 
a plethora of ideas. You know, I was I was never a guy who who, who didn't have ideas. The 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 idea of the original screenplay has now faded uh, in Hollywood from interest. If I were starting out today, I don't know what I would do. You know, maybe I'd become a, a an independent filmmaker if I was a young guy. You know. I become an independent filmmaker down and dirty, you know, doing original stories because that's sort of like my bent, you know, because now it's got to be a book based on a short story, based on an idea, based on a thing that a million people yeah. already know about, blah, 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 blah. and uh, based on a graphic novel that was based on a thing in Japan that was based on a thing from Ireland. It's like, get, get, stop it, you know. Okay, so how about something fresh and original? But anyway, that's where that's at right now. But it was a great time to be a writer for me. I sat down and I wrote the movie that I always wanted to see. That was Midnight Run. And I, I, I took, you know, movies that interested me a great deal were obviously Odd Couple Stories, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Uh, there was another movie that is one of my all-time favorites was the original Taking of Pelham 1, 2, 3. Mm-hmm. Oh, beautiful! Um, isn't it beautiful? It, to me, it's like it is. It still holds up to me as one of the best thrillers ever made. It, it's just flawless. The main character is a schlub. He's a you know he's sort of a innocent borderline racist at times. You know, it, it, it's <laughs> remember he's talking to the he's talking to the black cop over the phone through the entire movie, and he doesn't. Later on, he meets him and he says, oh, I didn't know you were, you know, it's, it's, and it's so frail. It, it, it's so honestly human and unapologetically so uh, that you, again, that's another movie where you forget you're watching a movie. You know, you're watching main characters that have warts and all, you know, it's so interesting and so, it's so well done and so well told and so well directed and you're on the edge of your seat, and everybody in that subway train's a real person. And, uh, you know, it's nearly impossible to pull off what that movie does in less than two hours. And one of the great scores of all time by David yeah. Shire. You know, those two notes, boom, boom, boom. You know, it's just, it, it's just, to me, it's a perfect movie. And that movie was a big influence on me. In fact, I've referenced it a couple times in Midnight Run, is the uh, Martin Balsam's real name is Harold Longman in The Taking of Pelham 1, 2, 3. They only say it once. Uh, uh, Walter Matthau says, Harold Longman. You know, uh, and I use that name in, in, in uh, Midnight Run when De Niro's on the phone. He says, is Harold Longman there? They, you know, I never and say hello up to, on that, but you're right. Yeah, yeah, and say hello to Julie for me. That's for my wife, Julie. <laughs> and yeah, and and but them and then there's another reference I make uh, when they say the taking of Pelham one two three. Remember when they're trying to uh, when they find out that the the, the hostage takers want a million dollars in sixty minutes, uh, the, the the banker goes, "It's not twenty five cents. It's a million dollars. It's a one with six zeros." You know, so that. <laughs> That one with six zeros I, I used as a sort of a homage. Yeah, there's a line in Midnight Run where he says a one with six zeros. Uh, Joe Pagliano says it. Uh, uh, but 
that movie was a heavy influence. So I, I took all of those things that I loved about movies and I wrote it in a way where I knew I wasn't going to be directed it, directing it because I wasn't a, a director yet. And I, I wrote it in a way where I knew it was going to be somebody else's headache, you know, <laughs> which is I don't know if today I would write a script that had a fist fight in a street followed by a helicopter chase through the Snake River Canyon to a <laughs> shootout by a bridge to, to two guys falling into a rapids going downstream. <laughs> that stuff's out of five different, that's five movies right there. <laughs> that thing is like one thing after another. And, you know, when you write something like that, you know, your giggle as a writer because you go, well, this ain't going to be my headache. And so I, I wrote chases on trains and, a hundred police cars chasing after a jeep. Uh, like I say, that stuff's enough for f 10 movies. On top of it, they go from New York to LA. And we shot in just about all of those places. They go New York. They go to Chicago. They go down to Texas, right? They go all through New Mexico. Mm -hmm. They end up on a freight train. They go to Las Vegas, you know, they go to Los Angeles. I mean, it goes everywhere. And Marty was a stickler. He wanted to... Sh You'd never... And on top of it, it's an R-rated movie for language. You would never, ever, ever, ever get that movie made today. Never. N-E-V-E-R underlined. Never. Okay? But uh, they were taking chances back then. They were risking. Today, forget about it. And it's yeah. a classic movie now. Everyone loves that movie. I mean, here we are still talking about it. Um, and I don't understand, like, you know, what dummy doesn't understand that? I mean, that people people love that movie. You know, why not make movies like that today? You know, but uh, no, it's got to be based on a thing or the thing based on another thing. So I don't understand it. And it has to be a connected universe. Yeah. I can tell you that somebody on this podcast... Recently, only just watched that film. Yes, I did. Didn't they? Yeah. <laughs> At the recommendation. Was that you, Steve? Yeah, that was. That was me. Uh, before we had John on last time, um, he mentioned all the fun that he had working on Midnight Run uh, briefly. And then when he came back on, I made sure that I watched it before we interviewed him so we could get the proper in-depth conversation about it. Did John Ashton tell you about the Circle K? Well, funnily enough, hmm. you won't actually believe this, but I've actually just had a message from John Ashton who heard you were on today. Oh, that's sweet. I love John so much. He said to say, He didn't hey. tell you about the Circle K? No, but he has just said, why don't you tell George to tell you about the train trip we took together? Oh, I'll tell you all about that. I'll tell you about the Circle K first. We were out in the middle of nowhere, okay? We were in a place called Globe, Arizona. The donuts? The donuts? What the donuts. Yeah, they had a donut shop and a Circle K. That was it. That was it. And our motel. I mean, it really was like tumbleweeds bouncing. What, honey? A Mexican restaurant. Oh, there was a Mexican restaurant. Yeah, but that was 42 miles away. So, so, but anyway. You know. So we were like, we were out there about eight weeks. Because the, the, the shooting schedule in Midnight Run was 90 plus days. I mean, you know, you know, now I'm shooting movies in 22 days. That was 90 something days to make that movie. It was like a lifestyle, you know, it wasn't like a, you know, a job. But like after eight weeks in Globe, you were really losing your mind. There was nothing 
to do. <laughs> I mean, nothing. It was like, well, I suppose I'll sit on this side of the bed now. I guess maybe I'll walk <laughs> over to this chair. I mean, no, it really like was like being in, in, in like in jail, there you know. Oh, there were no iPhones. There was nothing. You know, there was no cable TV. You know, there was nothing. We were literally losing our marbles if you weren't working. So literally, John Ashton came up with the greatest line. It was Ashton and De Niro because we were all in the same motel. You know, it was like, and literally he goes, "What'd you do last night?" You know, and you know. De Niro and, and John and I were sitting around, and he said, oh, I went to the Circle K. And John said, really? What aisle? You know, I mean, it was like, <laughs> there was like nothing to do. Nothing. No, I mean, I'm not kidding. Like, you'd be sitting there, like, if, if a fly landed on the table, you go, oh, that's interesting. I mean, there was nothing to do. Anyway. Um, it sounds like What did you say, Julie? The what? Oh, Julie said that. Oh, oh, you said the story about the train. Yeah. Um, I don't remember the train story as well as John probably does. I remember that when well, we had no hot water on the train. I remember that. I was taking the train around a lot because I don't like to fly. I am kind of Charles Grodin. Uh, if I can avoid <laughs> a plane trip, I will. We were taking Amtrak. I remember we got on the, oh, something happened with the train in L.A., I remember that, that the train, we had we couldn't get on it in L.A. There was a glitch. We had to get on it in San Bernardino. So we got on a bus. Now I'm remembering the story. Yeah, well, we started <laughs> drinking on the bus. It was night. <laughs> oh, so, no. yeah, we had a couple of pints of whatever we had, and we were pretty sloshed by the time we got to San Bernardino. And then John said, you know, oh, we were out of booze, like, after 100 miles. All right, so then... I was waiting in the train station for him, and he went off, I think, to go get us both another bottle. And the train rolled, and he barely did. I think he was, like, running <laughs> alongside the train, you know, like carrying a bag from a, from a, from a liquor store. He got on it. But then I, I don't remember. Going there was pretty uneventful. Coming back, I think we didn't have hot water. Is that the story? I think so. He's not told me what it is. But I'm sure he's going to have a continuation of this one. I'm sure he does, because something must have happened I forgot about. It's, it's going to be there. The train's pulling out the station. He's running to try and catch it. And you're there like, see you in the next life, John. Yeah, see you in the next <laughs> life, Jack. Take the bottle off him and leave him there. Yeah. Watch your liquor around <laughs> this guy, Jack. Yeah, watch your... Yeah, 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 right. Wow, you remember that. See, Andy, I do remember some stuff. You do, you do. Yeah. I'll give you credit on that. Well, in 1991... Uh, 1990, 1991, you finally step behind the camera as a director with your first feature, 29th Street, which is a great little movie starring Danny Aiello. Now, who were the first people you called upon when deciding to take the director's chair? Did you have uh, a mentor for transferring over to the big chair on set or what? I'm, I mean, I started talking to a lot of people. I don't know, I don't know about one specific mentor. Uh, after the success of Midnight Run... Uh, I figured if I want to direct, maybe now's the time to make my move because, first of all, Midnight Run was very well-respected as, as a piece of writing. And I figured, well, if I write something else and it gets made and it bombs out, then I'm going to be the guy coming off the bomb, not off the hit. So I figured if I'm going to make a move, now's the time to do it, to get in a director's chair. And 
Joe Roth, who at the time was probably, I think, without equal when it comes to, to running a studio, he, he, he's a filmmaker himself. A lot, I have a lot of respect for Joe. You know, he, when you make movies and you've, you've directed movies, which he's directed several movies, you get the joke because you've been there, mm-hmm. you know, it, uh, and he knew good material. He trusted people when they said something. And he knew once he trusted you not to interfere, uh, which is a hell of a quality for a film studio president because they sort of inevitably, they always interfere. And they tend to interfere because they don't know how to make a movie. And if you don't know what you're doing, you become nervous. And so your first inclination is to interfere with everything. And you're actually hurting yourself. You're not helping. You're just not helping. You're not helping the movie. You're not helping yourself. But if I were running a studio, I don't know if I could be that cool. I'm sure, you know, I'd be checking up on everyone because it's a hard thing to just let go. You know, like if you're a pilot, you have to trust that the air is going to hold the wings up. But to answer your question in terms of a mentor, I knew a lot of directors at that point. I knew Arthur Hiller, who I spoke with to some degree. Certainly Sidney Pollack, I bent his ear a lot. And the other thing Sidney Pollack said, he says, oh, and even more important than the other thing that I said, he said, you got to get good shoes. And I went, good shoes? What's he talking about? And I knew after a day what he meant, because you're on your feet all day and your feet are killing you. Mm. You've got to have good shoes and a good bed, because if you're not in one, you're in the other. Yes. (laughs) So then I talked to John Landis quite a bit. Uh, John Landis had an office near near my office when I was at Universal. I got to know him very well. John was very, uh, just a wonderful guy. Is 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 a wonderful guy. I haven't talked to him in a while, but you know he gave me uh, all kinds of tips. And uh, uh, you know he said to me like Hitchcock said that about ninety percent of di- of directing is a- is getting the right actors. Yeah, there's a lot of truth to that. I think in a lot of ways as a director, that the, 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 the making the movie part of it is it's very funny. It, it's To me, it's like the least interesting. The best part of directing a movie is pre-production, finding the locations, casting the movie, finding all the right colors for the set design, putting it all together. Because by the time you get to the set, You've almost kind of done about 90% of the movie. Now you have to execute the movie, but you've already made all the big decisions. You have to execute the movie. And at that point, all I'm really looking for is spontaneity in that I don't want it to feel like it was rehearsed and I want to keep it fresh. So I don't shoot a lot of takes. I know a lot of directors shoot like 30, 40, 50, 60 takes. To me, that's like, the death of all spontaneity. I don't know how, like William Friedkin, I talked to William Friedkin a lot. He said, George, if you shoot more than two takes, you don't know what you're doing. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, really? He goes, yeah. How many times can a guy walk through a door? And I went, you know, <laughs> you know, and, and Billy, you know, Billy, God bless him. He said a lot of very smart things. He even, even, even on this movie, I just did Mooty. I said, you know, I'm, I'm having trouble with the end of the movie. This is before the, I, and he said, well, what's the problem? And I was like, well, the end of the movie 
feels contrived to me, the way it's written. He goes, well, George, uh, you know, Billy's got that kind of Chicago thing. Uh, the end of the movie doesn't know it's the end of the movie. And I went, oh, oh that's like an it. interesting idea. I said, you know, then I figured, you know what, I'm going to treat the end just like every other part of the movie. The end of the movie doesn't know it's the end of the movie. It's, that's, that's genius because I was thinking of it too much like a climax and a climax and a climax. It's got to be the climax. And it's like, no, not in this movie it doesn't because <laughs> uh, there's sort of an anti-climax uh, at the end of the movie I just did. But anyway, you, you're, at, you're talking about mentors. Yeah, there's a lot of people that gave me a lot of terrific advice. I mean, throughout my career, you know, I, as I, you know, the more you make movies, the more you get to know people and uh, you call them up. Uh, uh, what's the old saying? Why, why pray to saints when you can go directly to God? So <laughs> I could call directors up that I really liked and, you know, they would be kind enough to take my call and I would ask them questions. Well, another thing that I kind of understand is... Um... And I might be wrong here, but if I'm not, uh, you don't often storyboard your movies. I think you like things to come more naturally. Now, is this something in line with your love of art? Is it about capturing that feel of the art piece instead of forcing it to be there? It's sort of a long answer, but I, I'll, I'll try to... I, the answer is yes. I do storyboard action sequences because there's a lot of second unit work involved in them. And you and the second unit director have to be on the same page that you're making the same movie. As a general rule, I don't like to back myself into a corner because I'm always looking for the thing to look fresh. Yeah. And if you over storyboard everything and you over this and over that, before you know it, you've got this sort of stilted thing that feels highly rehearsed and highly unnatural. And if you over-rehearse a movie and you over-storyboard and overthink everything, how is that ever going to look like it just happened? Now, I've seen very successful movies that are made that way, but they just have a different kind of feel. And the yeah. other thing about storyboarding is you get together in a room with a bunch of actors. On the Let's say uh, call time is 7, you want to be rolling by 8.30, right? Because I don't like dawdling. I don't like sitting around. I know a lot of guys, they hide in their trailer. That's not me. I'm, I'm, you get to the set, we're working, okay? So call time is seven. Everybody shows up. They're not in makeup yet. The actors all show up. You're in a room. I don't know exactly. I know what I want the scene to feel like. I know what the intent of the scene is. I want it to be visually pleasing, but I'm not going to lock myself in until the last minute because let's say you storyboard that whole scene. The second an actor says, hey, can I get up on this line and cross the room? All the storyboards are out the window. So why did you bother storyboarding something for three months if an actor suddenly has a great idea? That's, that's, that's just stupid. To, 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 so, I mean... You know, like the on Comeback Trail, you get Robert De Niro, Tommy Lee Jones, and Morgan Freeman in a room, and you're going to go, no, no, you can't cross over there because I got this great shot of you scratching your ear. I mean, wh what are you doing? That's ridiculous. You know, you got three of the greatest acting minds in the world, and one says, hey, can I cross here? And the other one goes, yeah, because if I cross, then I can do this. And then the third actor says, yeah, then I can interject. 
that is how something becomes organic and real. And that's what I do. And then based on what they're doing, and I'm watching it, on the morning, that's when I figure out how I'm going to shoot it, okay? I go, okay, when he, then they all leave. And then I turn to the cinematographer and says, okay, when he crosses the window, let's burn out the window. When he does this, throw a shaft of light across his face. When he does the, you know, and then you walk away. And then an hour and a half later, everybody's ready to go. What an amazing point. No, it's, it's full truth. Yeah. You know, I'll tell you, there, there's, there's a guy, John Hirschfeld, who is friends with Danny Aiello. It's really funny. You, you talk about mentors. He, you know, he, he's a writer-director also. And he worked with Danny on a movie. But there's a scene at 29th Street. It's not in the movie. It, it, it's on Danny's back. And uh, there's a scene where he throws a cabinet down. And he goes, that, move, that moment doesn't work. And I said, why? He says, he looks like he thought of it a month and a half ago. And I never forgot that because it, it was, the cabinet was rigged and it was too heavy to throw. So it was rigged with a couple of, of fish wires that when he started to throw it, the, the cables pulled the, the thing down. So it was like an unnatural move is what John was picking up on. So it was, I'm, I'm a quick study. I hear something once, I get it. So spontaneity, spontaneity, spontaneity. You know, you, you, you're, you're trying to capture something that feels real. It's really funny. Uh, I did a movie, Middlemen. First thing I said to the cinematographer was, I said, look, these people live without rules. If they, if they walk out of frame, fuck it. That's how they walk out of frame. I says, I'm not getting into eye lines and perfectly framed things and blah, 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 blah. I said, if they step out of their light, if they step into darkness, if they go out of focus, so be it. That's the world we're in. But I digress. <laughs> well, speaking of digressing, uh, you're going to hate me for this, George. In 1994, you brought Trapped in Paradise to the screen, which was a fairly big studio picture for 20th Century Fox at the time. Uh, yeah. Nicholas Cage doing one of the five leading roles he would be doing that year, which was, uh, I guess, guarding Tess, It Could Happen to You, Kiss of Death and Leaving Las Vegas with the others. Yes. And Trapped in Paradise was in between there somewhere. Now, I, I know we've kind of touched on this before and you don't really have many fond memories from that movie. It was kind of a bit of a troubled production for you, but it had a lot of heart. Well, now that Fox is no more, the movie's 28 years removed, uh, what, were, what were the biggest things you took away from that experience and the positives of it? Well, in retrospect, I watched it recently. It's interesting because, you know, I went on Amazon.com, you know, whatever, Amazon, uh, you know, Netflix, and I looked it up. And it had four and a half out of five stars from the user ratings. And I started reading yeah. the reviews and the people kept saying, this is my favorite Christmas movie. This is my favorite Christmas movie. This is my favorite Christmas movie. My family and I, we watch this all the time, blah, 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 blah. So I said, you know what? I'm going to watch it again. It's been 20 years. And I found myself really enjoying the movie a lot. And I, it, it's sort of like childbirth. I forgot all the pain of it, mm. you know. And I just enjoyed it as a movie. I thought it was, you know, I mean, it's silly as hell. Uh, which is kind of was the intent. And I like the movie. It is definitely a throwback 
you know, you talk about the 70s. That was a throwback to me. If Preston Sturges and Frank Capra got together to make a movie, that to me was Trapped in Paradise, you know? This ridiculous kind of high-energy movie mixed with a, a heart of a Capra movie. So the making of it was troubled in that it takes place all in one night, which I will never do again as a director. Of course, I did it with Vanquish, but that was you know, 15 or 16 nights as opposed to, uh, this was 60, 60 days to shoot that movie. It was all at night during a blizzard. It never occurs to you, of course, when you're writing these things, you know, in, in the comfort of your home, that you're going to have to go to Canada and shoot on the, it was literally the cold, you can look it up, it was 93 when we shot it. It was the coldest winter on record where we were shooting. And there were nights when it was literally 40 below zero. Ooh, God. And if that's not bad enough, we're adding fans and potato flakes to fake snow. There was tons of snow on the ground, but it didn't snow on the, you know, it didn't snow, uh, you, know, you know, on cue. So you had to fake snow in the air. So being hit with potato flakes in the face with giant fans and it's 40 below zero it's pretty darn difficult to be what I would say spontaneously comedic. It, it, it was sort of a nightmare and the actors weren't having a very good time. And I was struggling trying to stay warm and shoot. And, uh, but we never got behind schedule, but when we were done, we were all kind of exhausted and we, we didn't know if what we did was any good then we put it all together. It scored very high with test previews, but critics were just very cruel to it. Yeah. You know, like Waylon Green, another mentor as a writer, said that, he said, George, you're going to get good reviews and you're going to get bad reviews. And remember, you're never as good or as bad as they say you are. <laughs> I can believe that. And, you know, I'll be honest with you, it's almost more crippling to get great reviews early on in your career, which I did get. Because you've got to follow them up. Yeah, because you have to follow them up yeah. and you have all kinds of pressure on you. And then on top of it, I think sometimes they'll just go after you because they can. Because a lot of times when they say this is the worst movie ever made, now they didn't say that about Trapped in Paradise, but when people say that, for instance, um, the Michael Cimino Western. Oh, uh, Heaven's Gate. Yeah. When they say it's the worst movie ever made, I mean, really? Plan 9 from Outer Space is better than... <laughs> I mean, that's just ridiculous. That's just people talking. That's hyperbole. I mean, uh, Heaven's Gate has got some amazing stuff in it. In the end... Oh, yeah. Yeah, in the end, I'm not sure it quite works because I don't know... I don't think it's maybe as compelling... You know, I think the notion of the Johnson County War is more intellectual. If you know anything about it, you might get the movie better. But I think people just say mean and cruel things because they can get away with it. And then I think, uh, but there's a there's a great line in the uh, David Fincher movie that says, "It is not wise to judge yourself through the eyes of the joyless." Uh, yeah. So I I I, I kind of feel that way about. Film critics, it's like, man, if you like it, you like it. And if you don't, you don't. But they also didn't like the Impressionists very much. You know, <laughs> 25 years after the fact, everybody changes their tune. 
in the end, I don't think you can tell how good or bad something is. Uh, you can't tell if it's going to last. You know, I, I've seen things that I thought were unbelievable 25 years ago that that I look at now, they just don't hold up. Oh, you know, definitely. So something's fancy or it's a little colorful and loud and you kind of get caught up in the the trappings of it, and then, you, you know, you, like I say, then you look at it 25 years later and you go, that movie's kind of a mess. What did I think was so great about that? But I hope that time is kind to my work. I, I, I hope that it will be because just about everything I've done, I really, I put everything I had into it. Well, funnily enough, I mean, we watched Trapped in Paradise again on Disney Plus over the Christmas period, and uh, uh, we loved it. Uh, and, you know, I'd seen it before when it first came out. And it was the first time watching it since. And I do believe it's one of those movies that time has been really kind to. And I think people should just you know, re-watch it now, not in that kind of box office on top window, but just mm. as a, a movie experience from the past. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a very sweet tale. You know, it's a very moral tale. Uh, and it's loosely based on a story that somebody told me. It's actually something my, my my father told me a story of a couple of guys that were down in Pennsylvania that were going to rob somebody, and people were very kind to them, and they decided not to, to rob somebody. But that story always stuck with me. So that that was the basis of, of Trapped in Paradise. Like uh, like the idea of well, when people say something is a victimless crime, no, there's no victimless crime. A crime hurts someone. You just may not see who that someone is. So that to me was the, the base, kind of the, 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 the notion of that movie. Well, going on to a completely different movie, you wrote the original story for the 1995 hit Bad Boys, uh, which went on to star Will Smith and Martin Lawrence in pretty much career-making roles. Now, I have the feeling that the project has gone through redevelopment before becoming what it became. Uh, I did hear a rumour ages ago that it may have been developed with John Lovitz and Dana Carvey as a straight-up comedy. So what was the original story behind this? Bad Boys was written between Wise Guys and Midnight Run. It was a very tough... It was very close to the movie that it became. Uh, it was a very tough kind of Walter Hill shoot 'em up movie the character of julie mott that was played by what honey otea leone julie's name is julie lott i mean i i was pulling a lot of things out of out of my life at the time and it, it it's funny it went kind of full circle like what i wrote was a real down and dirty like i said walter hill 48 hours shoot him up then i left bad boys because uh there was some rumbling about it getting made when i was directing 29th street i was over at fox then and they were talking about developing it for john lovitz and dana dana carvey and making it an out and out comedy but i couldn't do it because i was getting ready to shoot 29th street then Mulholland and Barry came on and did a draft, <clears throat> making it, let's say, sillier. Although they wrote Trading Places. Mm -hmm. Then that version of it obviously didn't happen. Then 
I got approached again when Michael Bay was interested in doing it. Uh, and there was talk of that was 1990, the winter of 93. I was getting, I was getting ready to shoot trapped in paradise and they were getting ready to shoot bad boys. And, you know, and Martin Lawrence gets top billing in that movie. They, They were really rolling the dice on that because they weren't really big stars yet, you know, and they were going to make the movie on a limited budget and they wanted to go back to the original idea that I had, which was making it a real down and dirty shoot 'em up that happened to be funny. But I couldn't because I was prepping Trapped in Paradise. So then Doug Richardson came on and kind of brought it. He pulled elements out of my version and added some stuff to make it Miami because I originally wrote it for New York. But the creation of the characters, Mike Lowry, Marcus Burnett, those are those are my characters. Throughout the years, I guess uh, many directors kind of change their talent landscape as they move onwards. But you've kept a lot of regulars over the many years, over your many projects, including movies such as uh, Double Take, also available on Disney+, Plus, uh, Columbus Circle, uh, Middlemen, which is an amazing movie, by the way. I really love that Thank movie. Thank you. Uh, also, uh, a lovely shout out to your beautiful wife and actress, Julie Lott, who is around the background there. I've been friends on Facebook for many years and Aww. and a number of memes as well that we kind of trade between each other. Hi, Julie. Hi, Julie. Hi, Julie. They're saying, <laughs> they're saying hi, Julie. Yeah. We're talking about you now. We're talking about you now. They, they're talking about you. <laughs> Thank you. So, so. Do you really like keeping close relationships as part of your journey as a filmmaker? Because I know that um, there's been familiar faces throughout them all. I try to keep things like a family when I'm working. And I, for better or for worse, I'm sort of like an open soul. You know, if I'm around somebody and I'm very, you know, I like to listen to their life. I like to listen to their stories. Uh, So a lot of these people become very close and dear friends and we stay in touch even when we're not working, which a lot of times in Hollywood, it's a very bizarre thing in that you work very closely and intimately with people that you never see again, you know, and you have these very intense relationships and then they're over. Uh, That has largely not happened with me. I end up staying very close with a lot of the people that I work with and we, we talk and, you know, it's lucky in terms of business, in terms of like, I can pick up the phone and just call up an actor and say, Hey, I'm doing this movie. Do you want to do it? And they'll say, send me the script, you know, as opposed to, I got to go through an army of agents and managers who make full careers out of making sure things don't happen. I, I can bypass all of that. You just get straight to the meat and potatoes. Yeah. I mean, I cannot tell you how many times I've met actors that I've said, hey, uh, I just got to know from me, why did you turn down middlemen? And uh, they'll say, I was offered middlemen? Their agent doesn't mm-hmm. even tell them. You know, it's like, uh, you know, a lot of the stuff like that throughout my life. And uh, so I figured like, well, for whatever reason, managers and agents, they, they, they want to steer their clients in certain directions. You know, I've never been bashful. Uh, I, it's very funny. I'm shy about a lot of things, but I've never been bashful approaching somebody. 
I mean, the worst thing they can say is, cool. I've been thrown out of better places than this, you know? It's like, uh, you know, there's the old joke. I don't know if you know it. Uh, I, I was on an elevator with... with uh, I, the problem is you're going to have to cut. You're going to have to cut the punchline. So maybe there's no point in telling the story. But uh, <laughs> I'll tell us anyway. I, I, I was on an <laughs> elevator with uh, Frank Renzulli, who was a uh, executive producer and uh, one of the head writers on The Sopranos. And uh, Frank's a buddy. And uh, there was this kid on the elevator, <laughs> a sweet kid, like a like a kid from a mail room, and you could tell he was a nervous wreck. You know. And, uh, you know, we get on the elevator and we're like, you know, he knew who we were. So we were like these two well-known writers. And uh, so Frank looked at the kid and I looked at Frank and Frank kind of motioned, like, look at this nervous kid. You know, that was us 25 years ago, you know. So Frank goes to the kid, hey, what's your name? And the kid said, uh, uh, Richie. He goes, Richie what? He says, uh, Leberwitz. Frank says, Richie? can I tell you to go fuck yourself? And the kid just shrunk. And the kid said, well, why? He says, because in five years, no one's going to believe that I told Richie Leibowitz to go fuck himself. Oh, <laughs> brilliant. That's and really the kid nice. just And the kid just beamed. So, I, you know, I have warm memories of things like that. Um, that one's staying in, you, by the way. Okay, good. <laughs> Yeah, that's a great story. That you know, is. Um, I don't know what it is it related to, other than it was a great <laughs> moment. <laughs> uh, I think that is a perfect story to end that question on. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Are you most happy these days when you're writing or when you're directing? You know, I'm always afraid that God's listening, you know? Oh, really? <laughs> you know? I mean, if you believe that there's a higher power, they're always listening. Um it's a long answer. Again, I'll try to cut it down to 5,000 words or less. Uh, there's something that I love about both, and there's something that I really don't like about both also. Writing is a drag in that I have to commit to do it. Uh, I love when it starts flowing, when it's almost like I can't keep up with the thoughts. When that is happening, it's great. It's a sedentary thing, which I don't like sitting still that much, where I have to just sit and write and sit and write. I'm like, oh, I don't want to go out. It's a nice day, you know? So that part of writing, I don't like. There's no other way to get a screenplay other than to write it. So unfortunately, I have to do it, okay? Directing, I run the gamut between loving it and despising it. And that's not me trying to be cute because I think Robert Altman said, when I read this quote, I never understood it. When I was young, I was like, what's he talking about? It's because I hadn't directed yet. Robert Altman said in some interview, he said, uh, I hate directing movies, but I love having directed them mm. because directing is tremendous pressure and it's time and how do I do this in the next two hours? And something doesn't work. And suddenly I have to figure it out. And, uh, you know, and sometimes an actor can be prickly. And it's, and it's things just going wrong constantly. So that part of it leaves you, leaves you while you're, and you never get enough rest while you're shooting. You're always exhausted. 
you know? And directing is always the same thing. Like, I say to myself, I'm going to do nothing but eat healthy on this one. I'm going to just eat the vegetables, and I'm going to be a spitfire. And by five days in, you're eating donuts, you you know, you, 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 you're doing anything you can to stay awake. Yeah, give me three pots of coffee and four of those apple fritters there. And uh, and if there's any Kit Kat bars around, I'll take them. You know, you, you, you can't help it because you need sugar and, and caffeine to stay moving, you know. And sometimes you're shooting nights. You've been up 20 hours, you know. I mean, so that part of directing... I literally despise. I mean, if I could make a movie and go, I feel like I'll direct today. And I show up at the set and I have a day and then I take a week off. Then I would love directing, but that's not it. <laughs> you know, it's like you have to shoot this scene right now. You have to get it right right now. You have to get the coverage right now. You know, and if it's mm. if the weather is whatever the weather is, that's too bad. You know, if it doesn't match, if it's sunny in one direction and gray in another, that's too bad. That part of it is just backbreaking and exhausting. But then the next phase of directing is the rough cut. And I've never seen a rough cut where I don't want to literally jump off the roof of my house. <laughs> you know, you look at it and you go, well, this is even more horrible than I ever could have imagined. <laughs> you know, it has no pace. It's nothing interesting about it. All the colors are wrong. The sound sucks. There's nothing, there are no highs and lows. It is really, truly murder and suicide. It's as awful as it gets. And then you go, okay, I got to get back to work. And you start cutting it and finding the moments. And, you know, a lot of times you're alone. You're the only one that gets what you're trying to do. Even the editor is like, huh? Every once in a while, you know, you listen, how about if we went from this to this, you know? And eventually it comes together. And then you start putting the sounds in and then the music and then you start getting excited again because you go, holy shit, this is really starting to work. The thing I don't like about directing is that it takes forever. It takes forever. And I'm doing independent movies that are moving quickly, you know, but you have an idea in your head a year ago and you don't see it in, full, in fruition for 18 months. 18 months is a long time to have an idea, you know, about something and, and still trying to make it feel spontaneous. So, and then by the time you get to the end, you're kind of exhausted again. You've lost all objectivity. And, uh, you know, then you read on Rotten Tomatoes that you suck and you blow and you should die a slow death. And then hopefully over time, you've done something worthwhile. I, when I finish a movie and it's finished, I watch it a bunch of times and I'm still recutting it in my head. It's funny, like, you know, maybe if I flip those two shows, oh, shit, it's on HBO. I can't do that anymore, you know. But um, <laughs> years later, if I watch them, I, I'm generally pretty pleased. So I, I like having a body of work. It's, it's the work part that's difficult. Well, the finer things in life, such as your music, your painting, and... Uh... To add another string to your bow, George, wine. Now, can you disclose anything about your new venture into chasing crush? Um, I can tell you, yes, it, uh, it's not really wine. There's some talk about, yeah, I mean, I know that they're bottling wine with, with the name. It's a beautiful screenplay. This movie I would enjoy making. 
it's the closest thing to almost like a mystical experience. When I first got asked about this, Kevin Kinsella, Gene Kirkwood, who was call, called a few times since we've been on this, Gene Kirkwood called me and said, he said he had a, a script that Kevin Kinsella had written. Uh, and Kevin uh, is, is more of a producer than, than a writer, although he's turning out to be a really good writer. He, he didn't write till late in life. But he gave me a, a script and he, he, he said, I want to do something about these kids in the wine business. Uh, and he took me up to his, um, now this is going to start to sound very, ooh, but it's the truth, you know. <laughs> he took me up to his vineyard and I felt as if I'd been there before. And I realized that I had been having dreams of a place very similar to this place since I was a kid. And I started thinking, you know, if there is some sort of divine source in the world, maybe the, that divine source has been telling me that this is something I'm supposed to be doing. And there were also a lot of other images in these dreams I've been having since I was a teenager that I said to Kevin, I want to include them in this movie. So Kevin was like, have at it. So I, I rewrote the script and it's a very... One, one, it's out to two big actors right now, so I'm hoping they say yes, and if they do say yes, I, I, I will be able to make the movie I've really kind of always wanted to make. Uh, it's a story of... Jesus, how do you tell this in 15 seconds? It's a story of three generations going back of, of a Mexican immigrants who came to the United States who bought a little piece of land and he and his wife and his wife was kind of a otherworldly type of a woman and that she had a lot of visions and she envisioned that this place was going to one day be a very fertile area and three generations later the uh, the man that inherits the winery it's one of the most successful wineries in Sonoma and he hires these five broken kids to come work as interns during the harvest season. And they really are broken kids. And during the course of the harvest season, a lot of things happen that change everyone's life. And, you know, there's, all, there's a tremendous fire that happens in the third act. And these kids who've never cared about much of anything end up defending the property and saving it. And everyone comes out the other end uh, much changed for the better. And uh, it's just, it could be one of those movies that if you get it right, people will go, man, that was an amazing story. It's almost like Days of Heaven, which is one yeah. of my favorite movies. And in Days of he Days of Heaven, it's like, like pe taking peeking back the curtain and looking into a beautiful and, and sort of tragic dream. This is more of a beautiful dream. It's got a, it's got a fair amount of elements of tragedy and stuff in it. But it it could be one of those movies that if, if we get it right, boom, you go to the Oscars, you know. Mm. And if you get it wrong, whoa, you know. But uh, <laughs> I I don't think so. I I I really get this movie, and I I'm, I'm hell bent on getting it made. Line me up for that one. I'm, or, I'm right. already excited to hear about it. Yeah. Oh, thanks. It's, uh, I know what I'm really excited to hear about. It's time for you to nominate five. Oh, boy. 
Now's the time to nominate five. Nominate five? Yes, nominate five. Or Yes, for anyone who actually thought we were going to have different music to lead into Nominate 5, we have just disappointed everybody. <laughs> New season, same old shit. <laughs> You're still there, George, I hope. No, I got scared. I didn't know what to nominate. I mean, uh, uh, I'm sorry. Go well, ahead. that's okay. Uh, Make it easy. Here. As you're heavily into the world of painting... Five favourite pizzas? Pizzas? Well, we can yeah, have plenty sorry, of pizzas. No, that would have been easier. Well, yeah. well, the painters are pieces of art that are most inspiring to George Gallo. Now, mine has always been Jacques-Louis David's 1793 The Death of Marat painting. Ooh. Now, when asked why, that's how I always envision I'm going to go. Dead in a bathtub while trying to finally put my name on a development contract. Or maybe... It will be uh, that one by Albedo Art, as it's probably the only real green light I'll ever see. So, <laughs> looking at the works of George Gallo, what are your top five favourite pieces of art? Starting from number five. You know, I don't know if I have any particular painting. Uh, I, I could think of bodies of work that have okay, so then. inspired me, and I don't think... I don't think five could cover it. You know, it's it's. Um, well, don't worry. The countdown never really works anyway. No, okay. ever, especially ever. If your I name's mean, Bill Daly. So you can just yes. <laughs> you know, I mean, Eva certainly. Three. I mean, in terms of painters that have touched me and sort of changed the way I see painting, there, there's a there's an American painter by the name of Edward Redfield, who probably was the biggest influence and that he was completely insane. Not unlike Turner, the English painter, because Turner used mm -hmm. to hang himself uh, on the bows of ships and get hit with water, <laughs> I mean, in order to paint <laughs> waves. You know, uh, so I love Turner, obviously, but Redfield went out and painted these giant snow scenes in sub-zero weather, and there is such energy and vitality in those works that I, I just find them intoxicating. There's another... Painter George Wesley Bellows, oh, yeah. who uh, painted uh, boxers and and Monhegan Island and 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 these wonderful turn of the century things of New York, but he painted them with grit. He painted New York in a way that wasn't pretty. You smell the my my wife's blowing. Julie's blowing her nose. Uh, <laughs> it's funny because I'm going to talk about a smell. It's yeah, you smell the cat. You smell the cat urine in George Bellows's <laughs> paintings, you know, of the city. You know, uh, Daniel Garber is a, that's three, is a phenomenal Pennsylvania impressionist who sort of, he painted Pennsylvania with an almost kind of, a, I would say, romantic, uh, almost mystical kind of view. There's another uh, John Singer Sargent to me, who's the, the, the father of modern portraiture, uh, and Gustav Klimt. Uh, I adore Klimt. I mean, I could go on and on and on. But those painters are guys that I, they're people I'm always thinking of as I work. Um, I, I feel like they, uh, they're around me when I'm working. Uh, you know, like sometimes if I see like a bunch of little dots in the leaves, that's very much like Klimt, you know, because he did a lot of dots and dashes to express things, you know. The, yeah. So, I mean, those thoughts all go through my head when I'm painting. There you go. That is an amazing nominate five. You managed to get five out. 
Which is good. Thanks. Yes. Which I, I know it's been really hard for you to kind of whittle it down to just five people, but I think you did very well. Some Thank people you. can't even do five. They'll do six oh, or three. I could go on and on and on, <laughs> as I'm sure you figured out. <laughs> no, no, George, I'll tell you what, this has been an absolutely amazing episode, yeah. and there's so much more to cover. We're just going to have to have you come back yeah. at some point. I'll come back. Because we have barely even touched the sides of the questions that we wanted to ask. This really? Time <laughs> yes. I'm terribly so sorry. More Next time I'll just shut up and say, you should give me a, like a yes and no button. I'll just hit that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. But we've had a point at some point where we've like written out questions, think that'll be enough. And some of them are so short with the answers. We're like, we've only been going 20 minutes and we've done 120 questions. Yeah. <laughs> that have usually been, yes, no. Yeah, I don't want to talk about that. No. Oh, like, really? Why no, did you come no. on? I'll talk, about, I'll talk about anything. The only thing I won't do is speak ill of someone. You know? No. Well, that, that's the reason why we do the show. We don't really have any ill speaking of anyone. We don't get into politics. Um, well, we just love to hear the stories, the influence, yeah. and the work. And, and that's what it's all about. And that's what it should be about. And and we know uh, you've got your movie. Sorry, I forgot the name of the one you're currently editing together. Uh, Muti, M-U-T-I. Muti. Starring so, um, Morgan Freeman, Cole Hauser, and Peter Stormar. And Julie Lott Gallo. <laughs> you're doing the Morgan Freeman run at the moment. Yeah, well, that's great. Yes, I've been very lucky. Again, Morgan and I, listen, I, I'll tell you a quick Morgan Freeman story. And, and uh, First movie... Uh, that I did with Morgan was called The Poison Rose. And the very first shot of the movie, Morgan Freeman was in it. And I'd only met Morgan briefly the night before. But, you know, you don't know somebody till you really work with them. So, like, I'm sitting on the edge of the bed, 4 o'clock in the morning, and I'm like, what the hell am I doing? I'm going to direct Morgan Freeman. What am I out of my fucking mind? You know, So <laughs> and, and John Travolta. You know, these guys are icons, you know. So I show up on the set. And Morgan Freeman shows up and says, where do you want me to stand, boss? And I went, okay, uh, over there by the window, please, so I can get you kind of backlit. And then when uh, Pompka Johnson walks in and says her line, you're going to turn and you're going to say your piece and blah, blah, blah. And he went, okay. So then he comes back. We shoot it. And then he turns to me and says, notes? And I went, no, that that was actually perfect. And he goes, you and me are going to get along just fine. <laughs> <laughs> so we were, after that, we were like best buddies. And uh, so he said to me at the end of the shoot, he goes, this is like the most fun I've had in a long time. He said, anything you do, you call me. So wow. I've just been calling him. Say, Morgan, you want to make another movie? He goes, when? I said, August, okay. <laughs> oh, that's great. Maybe we can line it up one day, Steve, so you can do your Morgan Freeman impression oh, to Morgan Freeman. No, no, I wouldn't dare. He probably <laughs> you gets actually filled me once that it was actually Morgan Freeman because no. it was actually pretty good. <laughs> and it's not a voice that you can do very well, no. but you can actually do it pretty well. Sometimes that Bobcat it comes Goldfoy. out quite well, and other times <laughs> it really doesn't. <laughs> I used to be able to imitate people pretty well and I would get people on the phone and harass them there was one producer I can't mention his name he was going to sue another producer friend of mine and I used to get a very heavy accent which I kind of mastered and because I really listened to him and he had a high-pitched voice and anymore you're going to know who it is 
So I used to <laughs> call this other producer all the time, threatening to sue him. And he would fall for it up to a point. And then finally go, is that you, Gallo? And I go, yeah, it's me. And he, he would hang up very annoyed. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Just the loving games that you would play on your friends. Oh, God, we yeah. do horrible things to each other. Horrible things. <laughs> well, Judge, I mean, it has been an absolutely amazing show. Um, oh, great. We're so thankful you came on. I mean, this is the kickoff for our third run on Partywood. And well, it this, should, this should put better. you out of business then. <laughs> yeah. well if that's going to happen it's going to go out on a high i'll tell you that for nothing all right yeah. god bless guys i'll do this anytime i i i, I enjoy this because it's also uh it's also fun to you know to reminisce about things because you guys ask questions that uh, make me think about things and think about places and you know some of these people are gone now you know when you think about dennis farina and yafet you know they're mm-hmm. gone and, yeah and i i have very warm memories uh one last story, Yafed Koto story. Yafed Koto, you know, in Midnight Run, he's eating his steak when they come in, and he says, "Is this going to upset me?" Mm. <laughs> and he goes, "Yes, I believe that'll be the. You know, I believe it's safe to say that." Well, Marty kept bringing, and Marty likes to shoot a lot of takes. <laughs> so the cook was making all these steaks in the kitchen, and Yafed never ate. He just cut a piece, put the piece up to his mouth. They did a cut, you know. Then. Marty'd say, new steak, you know, and there were eight steaks, perfectly beautiful steaks that they kept taking away. And I was sitting there, and I don't think John Ashton was one of them, but I know Pantleana was hanging out on the set. And I said, you know, all these steaks are going away. So this is the shit. And I think between me and Pantleana, we ate like four of those steaks. <laughs> well, there's one last little section of the show to go. Steve. What's in the box? 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 Oh, I haven't heard that theme tune in so long. No. I'm actually <laughs> thinking that we should get Neil to redo it like Bob Dylan or something. Yeah, I think we do. What's in the box? What's in the box? Hey, what's in the box? Speaking of which, Steve. Yes. What is What's in the Box? Well, What's in the Box is the part of the show where Andy tries to educate me and get me away from my Xbox, which I spend far too much time on. Uh, he's going to plunge his hand into a box full of movies, which are all certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, and he's going to pull out one. If I have seen it, then we're going to keep pulling out movies until we find one that I haven't seen, and then I go away and watch it the day before we record our next episode. Simple. Easy. 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 Okay, so are you got? ready for this? Yep. I digged out a couple just in case. The first one... Please be short, please be short, please be short, please be short. <laughs> is uh, please Death Race 2000. Oh, Death Race. Death Race, two- Death Race 2000. I haven't seen it. The Roger Corman classic, I guess you'll call. David Carradine, Sylvester Stallone. Uh, directed by... Oh, I don't even know it was directed by. Something wants to tell me it was Neil Israel, but I don't believe it was Neil Israel at all. But yes, that is your movie, and you haven't seen it, so that's that's a good it. way to start off the month. No, that could be fun. That could Have be you fun. seen Death Race Two Thousand, George? Yeah, of course. I've like like maybe thirty times. <laughs> <laughs> so you're like, now rolling your eyes at me, going, "Wow, you haven't seen this? What the hell is?" Well, up no, with this guy? It, it's definitely a classic of my time, and and it was that it was like maybe Stallone's first movie. Uh, 
or one of his first movies. Uh, it's first movie rocky. where he had clothes on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he's he's a, he's a uh, kind of a, well, you got to see it. It's sort of it's 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 a camp classic, I would say certainly. Well, yes. I have quite a bit of love for Roger Corman. It, the way that he can get the movies out on such a small budget and them still look vaguely like movies, I actually think is a real skill. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm looking forward to the that same one. set 500 times. Ah. Too, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, that's your movie, and I'm looking forward to hearing what you thought of it. Yeah. Uh, so that will be on our next episode. But in the meantime, George... Absolute pleasure yes. to talk with you. I know I'm going to talk with you anyway, hopefully within uh, the next week or so. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of the best with the editing of your movie. Send our love to Julie. We hope to get her I will on send the show my love to Julie. Yes, she's five feet away. She sends her love back. <laughs> Yeah, we want to get you on the show with George doing commentary in the background next time. <laughs> okay, Julie, you're on the next show doing. They said they want you on the next show oh doing. Oh my god! Uh, doing pressure. pressure. <laughs> yes, I. I have seen another Midnight Run, so I I know of her role in it, and I have seen her in many movies since. So yes, she's been she's in every movie basically that I do, and uh, she could tell you stories probably better than I can. And she's also <laughs> produced quite a few of the movies uh, that I've done. So yeah, she'd actually be a a real asset. She and I have. Uh, probably different ways of remembering some of the <laughs> Yeah, well, we can get the alternate side of the story. Sure. <laughs> the truth is in the middle somewhere. Right? Yes. But, George, um, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, we look thank forward you to guys. having you very, again. Very yeah, much. thank you. And we hope you've enjoyed yourself. Uh, very much. It was a blast. Well, I guess uh, that is it for this episode. Yeah, so what Z- a way to kick off. The start of season three, we've got a ton of brilliant guests, which we've got lined up. And John Ashton is coming back again yes. this season. Yes, because <laughs> he's got to talk his way through the early 2000s. Yes. Uh, we will see you all again. Goodbye for now. <laughs>